would look with me in Philippians chapter 2 for context, we're going to be looking, reading verses 14 to 18. We're going to center our time on 16 to 18, which is kind of the middle of a conversation. But for lack of time last time, we, we have to pick up here in verse 16. Apostle Paul writes in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The implication being that grumbling and disputing just eclipses our witness. It clouds our witness. Paul understands that. He says, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father of mercy, we thank you that we have such text that reminds us that what we consider perhaps innocent, harmless sins like grumbling are egregious to your heart. And very damaging to our faith. Damaging to our witness. But we're also given. The prescription for it today. I pray that we could hear it. And apply it. By your spirit. For the sake of your son. In whose name we pray. Amen. Do you realize. That. On an average day, you speak 18,000 words. Now, some speak more than that. And most of those live in my house. (laughs) And some of you speak less than that. But the average human being speaks 18,000 words per day, which amounts to a 54-page book. In one year, you'll produce, get this, at least 66 800-page volumes based on the average number of words spoken by a human being. You know, it's a good thing to communicate. It's a good thing to speak. Why? Because we are the image of God. And that's part of what it means to be the image of God. Our God is a speaking God. Our God is a revealing God. And so when we communicate, we are imaging God. As well, it's good to speak because our words are the tattletale of our hearts. Our words are the thermometer of our hearts. They reveal the condition of our hearts. And it's good to know your heart's condition. Jesus said, out of the abundance, the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's why I find author William Farley's challenge very helpful, if not painful. He says, record your speech for a day. And then meditate on what it says about your heart condition. A disloyal heart gossips. A proud heart criticizes. 
A heart filled with selfish ambition speaks jealousy. A hateful heart slanders. A fearful heart speaks words of anxiety and stress. A heart that fears man avoids confrontation or flatters. An insecure heart boasts. An ambitious heart speaks words of self-promotion. An ungrateful heart grumbles and complains. Think of all the heart conditions that, that Farley describes here. Disloyalty. Pride, selfish ambition, hate, fear, fear of man, insecurity, and ingratitude. These heart conditions are behind most, if not all, divisions in a church. They're behind most, if not all, divisions in a marriage, in a family, and in any relationship. And given the emphasis that the Exodus narrative, and the Exodus narrative really drives the rest of the Bible. It's one of the most important narratives in Scripture. Given the emphasis of the Exodus narrative on the grumbling of the people of God after God had done so much for them... And given the fact that of all things the Apostle Paul could have mentioned, after he commands us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, he calls us to not gossip for the sake of our witness in the midst of a darkened world. And given the fact that grumbling essentially declares that God is not sufficiently God is not adequately good and faithful and wise and loving and competent and powerful. Maybe none of these heart conditions that we just read from Farley more commonly eclipses God's glory in Christ in our lives, God's light in Christ in our lives than the sin of grumbling. And the tragedy of all that is that our calling as a church is to be light, verse 15, in the world. But as we saw last time, one doesn't just stop grumbling. You may have the fortitude to stop grumbling outwardly. You just make a resolution. I'm not going to speak any words of grumbling. But yet your heart still grumbles. We don't have the capacity to change our hearts. Even if it is God who is at work and to do according to his good pleasure, there are things that we, by grace, are responsible to do as the children of God, to address the issue of grumbling, or the Apostle Paul would not call us to do away with grumbling. And what we see first in this passage, remember the... The language here is of children of God. We are adopted heirs. He is speaking to believers who have been united to Christ, our elder brother, and who are now joint heirs with Christ. That's what it means to be adopted into God's family by grace. He says the children of God, to address the grumbling that is so epidemic in the human heart, we're to hold fast the word of life. 
Notice in verse 16. So he says, Do all things without grumbling. And here's the prescription for that. Holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. And so Paul is implying here that the one who gives in to grumbling is not holding fast the word of life. That's what he is implying in this text. So when someone grumbles to you, mark it down. That person is not holding fast to the word of life. When you grumble, mark it down. You're not holding fast to the word of life. And so this is a crucial passage for us. A critical strategy for dealing with grumbling, the Apostle Paul says, is to be overtaken by something that is much more beautiful, ultimate, eternal, real, and important than the object of your grumbling. That's why he says you're to hold fast the word of life. You're grumbling about something that has taken on almost idol-like status. It's too important to you. It's so important to you that you're willing to sin because you didn't get it or because you're not experiencing it. You're not receiving it. And so you grumble. And that's why he says you're to hold fast the word because the word gives you something that's so beautiful, so ultimate, it puts what you're grumbling about into perspective. That's what he's saying. The word of life reveals that something and that someone. This is one of my favorite descriptions, by the way, in all the Bible on the scripture itself. Paul calls it the word of life. I love that description of the gospel-centered scriptures. It is the word of life. I wonder if the apostle Paul was reflecting on Psalm 119 when he describes it this way. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. There's 22 stanzas. Each stanza beginning with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. With eight verses. Perfect symmetry. And so you have 176 verses that lay out the glory of the Word of God. I know of a guy at Southern Seminary right now who's memorizing that chapter in Hebrew. But one of my favorite refrains in that chapter is that the psalmist 12 times says, give me life according to your word. Give me life according to your promise. Give me life according to your precepts. And Paul here describes this message as the word of life. The word of life is the message which both tells of life and then imparts the life in which it tells of. A few weeks ago, I watched a sermon that Billy Graham preached in Houston, Texas at his crusade there in 1981. 
And at the beginning of the crusade, or the beginning of the, the message, he had everyone turn to Psalm 102, verses 6 to 7. And here's what he read in his King James Version. I am like a pelican in the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I watch and am as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. Of course, as he read that, I was thinking, how are you going to use this evangelistically? I'm like a pelican in the wilderness. But then he explained. He said in 1954, he and his team were in London doing a three-month crusade at Haringey Arena. And his wife, Ruth, was with him. And one day, being the, the reader that she was, she went down to the used bookstore nearby. And she saw a man working in that bookstore who looked just miserable. And he recognized her. And he came up to her and he said, are you Mrs. Billy Graham? And she said, yes, I am. And he said, you know, I am so discouraged. My marriage is breaking up. Everything is happening to me. I don't know what I'm going to do. And she said, why don't you come out to Haringey Arena tonight and hear the gospel? And so she gave him tickets. She never heard from him again. She prayed for him. But a year later, Graham and his team were back in London. And Ruth went back to that bookstore. And she saw the man. And his countenance had completely changed. And he told her, you know, I took those tickets. And I went to that arena that night. And I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And my wife accepted Christ. Now we have a Christian family. And you know the verse of scripture your husband quoted that night? That won me to the Lord. It was Psalm 102 verses 6 to 7. I am like a sparrow in the wilderness. He said, that described my condition. And I believe God was speaking to me. And he was converted. Of course, Psalm 102 verses 6 to 7 is not the gospel. But it prepared him for the gospel. God spoke to him through the word of life. Preparing him to hear about The pardon of sins that is found in Jesus Christ. That no matter what sin you've ever committed, there is pardon in Christ who took the judgment for sin for those who would trust in him. And he and his wife were converted to Christ. And hence the scripture that Paul gives here. But as the psalmist of Psalm 119 makes clear, this word of life is not just for The unbeliever. In fact, it's primarily for the believer. Do you know that the Bible is a covenant book written to covenant people? The Bible is primarily written to believers. The gospel is a message that's primarily communicated to believers. An unbeliever is converted by it. But an unbeliever is eavesdropping on a sheep feeding. That's why when we preach in the pulpit, we primarily preach to believers. We certainly consider unbelievers... We believe it's the only message by which an unbeliever can be saved. But this is a covenant book written to covenant people. And so when Paul is writing about this word of life, he's speaking to you. 
He's saying that the Bible is not optional for the Christian. That's why the psalmist would cry, give me life according to your word. The psalmist was already a believer. In fact, this phrase, holding fast, is actually the beginning or the the completion of a sentence that began in verse 15 where he says, you shine as lights in the world. So he is speaking to believers there. And then he says, hold fast the word of Christ, the word of life. In other words, Paul is informing those who are in Jesus Christ, the children of God, on how you are to shine. And it is completely dependent on holding fast the word of life. The the word of life is not God. The Bible is not God. Okay? We don't worship the Bible, but it is the very energy that emanates from the essence of God. It's like light rays to the sun. The light rays themselves are not the sun, but they're organically related. So we can say the Bible is the Word of God. It doesn't just contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. Just like sun rays are organically related to the sun. And so when you are burned by the rays, you're burned by the sun. This is the Word of God. It's inerrant and it's infallible because of that. And as that light permeates every thought, as it permeates our wills, our minds, our hearts, for those who are in Christ, who is the light of the world, we shine, reflecting the light of Christ himself. And it also has an effect on that real capacity to be discontented and frustrated And selfish and thankless and self-absorbed, which is behind our grumbling. So it transforms grumbling into gratitude. That's what the word of life does. The second thing Paul says here in this passage, the children of God, yes, are to hold fast to the word of life. But the second point is more implied and it's found in the second part of verse 16. The children of life are to hold fast to a last day, day of Christ, that is, mentality. Notice in verse 16, the second part. So they're to hold fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, the point here is implied by Paul's mentality. The Apostle Paul did not live with this is all there is mentality. That's not how he lived. He lived for the day of Christ. Now that day is not just something that awaits us. It's a day that was ushered in when Christ was raised from the grave. The day of Christ was inaugurated when he was raised from the grave. The day of Christ erupted into this present fallen age. All right, But we await the fullness, the consummation of that day. And believers receive a deposit of that inheritance that awaits us in that day. And that deposit is the Holy Spirit. Having believed, you're marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. 
We see something of that in chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul speaks about this encouragement that we have in Christ, the love, the comfort of love that we have in the Father, and the participation uh, that we have in the Spirit. And for the present time, that was sufficient for the Apostle Paul. He has God. No matter what his circumstances are, no matter who's against him, he has God. And yet that deposit that he had by the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, whet his appetite for the day of Christ. He wanted more. He groaned for the fullness of his adoption, as he writes about in Romans 8. And as a result, he lived for that day. He put all his eggs in that basket. His life was consumed with that day. Now, remember his circumstances. Paul is chained in prison. Uh, Many scholars believe he was there for two years in a Roman prison. And he was chained 24 hours a day to an imperial guard. So he was some 18 inches away from another human being for two years. And it it appears that there were skeptics and there were rivals uh, who were pointing at that and saying, look at this guy. He's not all that. If he was all that, he wouldn't be in a prison. This man has run. He has labored in vain. He has wasted his life. And Paul says that's wrongheaded. A legitimate assessment of my life won't come until the end. A legitimate assessment of my life will not come until the day of Christ. Paul says, I am not living For temporal gain. Now think about what this does for grumbling. Because when we grumble, we are fixated on something temporal here and now. We're we're not getting it. It's not satisfying. And so we grumble. And Paul is teaching us by his example how to think not with a destination mentality like we've arrived, but a preparation mentality. An eternal perspective. In fact, we know that he is setting an example for us because he will say in just a few verses later in chapter 3, verse 17, imitate me. In other words, he is showing us what our focus will be, what our frame of reference will be when we have his perspective, when we live for the day of Christ as he lives for the day of Christ. In fact, he's going to give us two examples next week in Timothy and Epaphroditus of men who had that perspective. And Paul implies here that his life has been so sacrificial for the sake of these believers in Philippi that if they don't turn from their grumbling, if their light is eclipsed by their sin, if they don't work out their salvation with fear and trembling, if they don't hold fast the word of Christ, then his life and his ministry would be in vain. In other words, if they don't persevere. And it reminds me of 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9 where Paul writes in that great chapter on the resurrection. He says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You know what he's saying there? Similar to what he's saying here. 
He says, if Christ has not been raised from the grave bodily in time and space, I have so given my life to him, I would be the most pitied person on the earth. But Christ has been raised. And therefore, it's wise to give my life away for him. And here he is saying, if you do not persevere and respond to my apostolic admonition, my life would be in vain. My ministry would be in vain because I've given myself away for you. And he wants us to live that same way. He wants us to have that perspective. That's why he will tell us time and time again, brothers, join in imitating me. This requires a last day mentality. And as I even tell you that, I recognize I don't have that as I should. If I did, I wouldn't be so prone to anxiety and discouragement and a critical spirit and grumbling. Paul could tell people to not grumble because he didn't grumble. And the reason he didn't grumble is he wasn't caught up in temporal vanities. He lived for the day of Christ. And that brings us to the final or or the third point of this text. The children of God are to hold fast to the word of life. They're to hold fast uh, to this last day mentality. But they're also to hold fast to the cost of discipleship. Notice with me in verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. What is he saying there? Well, I could could give you a very complicated explanation here. So I'm going to simplify this for time's sake and for your sanity's sake. He's picking up text like Numbers 15 and Numbers 28. Where... Under the old covenant sacrificial system, there were two burnt offerings offered every day. In the morning, you had a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. And before, the the sacrificial animal was laid up on the altar to be burned, they would pour wine. They would pour wine on the sacrifice before they burned it to enhance the aroma. To enhance the aroma up to the Lord. Because it was signaling that debt has been paid. It was signaling that God's wrath on the people of God had been satisfied in the sacrifice. Of course, we recognize that was pointing us to the one who would come ultimately and sacrifice once for all. For the forgiveness of sins. And now there remains no more sacrifice for atonement. But now, in response to that once-for-all sacrifice in Jesus Christ, what does Paul say in Romans 12? We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what he's alluding to here when he says the sacrifice of their faith. He was the wine being poured out on their sacrifice. And so there's an emphasis here where he's calling them to work out their salvation... As a living sacrifice to God in response to the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he is the wine being poured out on their sacrifice. The central point here is that Paul is reminding them of the sacrificial investment 
for their salvation, for their sanctification. Don't you understand how seriously God takes your sanctification? That's what he's saying to them. And God expends expensive human capital so that you can be saved. So that you can be conformed to Christ. That's what he's saying. And there are remarkable examples of that throughout church history. Martyrs, people who were extraordinarily gifted and could have made marks uh, in other arenas, other disciplines. But they gave their life away for the gospel ministry, men and women. One of my favorites in more recent time is that of William Borden. Who was the heir of the Borden Corporation. Elmer's Glue, Borden Milk, multi, multi, multi-million dollar corporation. But he was called to the Muslims of Egypt. He renounced it all. And Randy Alcorn, in one of his books, The Treasure Principle, speaks of his trip to Cairo where two missionaries took him to the graveyard where Borden was buried. It was overrun with grass. But he saw on the tombstone there, William Borden, 1887 to 1913. Here was an, a Yale graduate and an heir, multi-million dollar corporation, and he renounced it. But after four months of ministry in Egypt, dwelling in obscurity, he contracted and died of spinal meningitis. And after his death, his Bible was found and, and given back to his parents. And here's what it said in the leaf of the Bible. No reserve. And there was a date next to that, placing that Note, no reserve, after he renounced his fortune in, in view of going to mission. And then at a later point, he had written, no retreat. Which was dated shortly after his father told him he could never work for him again. His father was upset at him for doing that. And then finally, the words, no regret, that he had written just before he died. After he had contracted Spinal meningitis. No reserve. No regret. No retreat. And then Alcorn dusted off the tombstone. And here's what it said. Apart from faith in Christ. There is no explanation for such a life. Amen. And his life which was unreserved service and commitment to God inspired countless missionaries in the 20th century to take the gospel to the nations, to the hard places. It's a remarkable story. And that four months of ministry of William Borden is an indication of how committed God is to the salvation of his people and to the sanctification of his people. Paul is telling them, I am being poured out like a drink offering so that you can be conformed to Christ. So that you would work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So that you would be a light to a dark world. It's a call to realize and recognize the cumulative effect. The cumulative investment that God has now made for your salvation. 
the countless people, people you've never even met, that God has set apart, that have laid down their lives so that we could be here today. Don't take your sanctification lightly. Don't take your sin lightly. Again, he's addressing the issue of grumbling, which we do take lightly. Yes, he sent Jesus into the world. Jesus is our justification. Jesus was the justified one. Jesus was raised from the grave and God justified the substitute. When God raised him from the dead, he said, this man is justified before me. And for those who are united to Christ, we are justified. And Jesus is our sanctification. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. But to that great and all-sufficient and final work of Jesus, he has gathered around a cloud of witnesses to spur you on to godliness. Don't take your sanctification lightly. That's what Paul is telling them. And he's speaking to Fisherville that way. It should sober us to fervency in working out our salvation. And it should provoke us to gladness and to joy. That brings us to the final point. The children of God are to hold fast the word. They're to hold fast this last day, this eternal mentality. They're to hold fast the cost of discipleship. And finally, they're to hold fast to joy. Look at the second part of 17 and 18. I am so glad and rejoice with you all. This guy's writing from prison. This proves he's not a grumbler. Because if I was writing to you, my Fisherville brethren and sisters, I promise you there'd be some grumbling. The food is awful. This guy that I'm chained to snores. The bed is hard. That's not what he does. He says, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, Fisherville, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Why would he close out a section that began in chapter 1, verse 27, and we'll look at that in just a moment, with this language of gladness and joy? Because joy... And gladness in the Lord is our fuel. It's our fuel. If we run on any other fuel, we will malfunction. Barry and I both have cars that require premium gas. We were lamenting the other day. You're complaining at the pump. What if you had premium gas you had to put in your pump, in your car? And I said, man, what would happen if we put in regular fuel? He said, well, uh, your engine would begin to knock. I said, well, I can handle that. But then, basically, the the engine would detonate. I can't handle that. You can live for a time, maybe, without joy and gladness. Your life will knock. But ultimately, you will self-implode. God has ordained it for the Christian that joy and gladness be your fuel. If you're running on anything else... Beware. And that's why he ends with this way. Think about this. Psalm 51. David has committed heinous sin with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. 
And he writes this song of confession and repentance. It's a beautiful song. And here's what he says in verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. What is he saying there? David recognizes to get past the guilt, the contrition, the conviction, and the brokenness of his heinous sin. He needs his joy restored. Joy is the fuel. And so you see what Paul is doing here. Let's close this out. He wants the church, going back to chapter 1, verse 27, to let their manner of life to be worthy of the gospel. So chapter 1, verse 27 to chapter 2, verse 18 is one section. It began with that command. Let your manner of life, Fisherville, be worthy of the gospel so that whether I am with you or am absent, I will hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he recognizes joy is what will animate that. It's the only thing that will animate that. Grumbling will destroy that. Grumbling destroys unity. And so he reminds them in chapter 2 verse 1. You have the encouragement of Christ. You have the comfort of love. You have the participation of the Spirit. He reminds them of what Christ has done for them. He made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a servant. He came in the likeness of man. And as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even the death of the cross. He reminds them that God is at work in you every moment of the day, every week of the year. To do and to will. So that you will be conformed to Christ. So that your desires will be transformed. And he also reminds them by his own example. That God expends expensive human capital. So that you might be saved and sanctified. All so that we can gladly and and joyfully work out our salvation. With fear and trembling. So that we will be a light in this dark world. That's what he is saying here in this section. And the only response to that as Christians, God, enlarge my heart. Enlarge my heart. Forgive me for my grumbling. I want to repent of my grumbling. I don't want to chuckle about it. I don't want to say that's just the way I am. I'm a grumbler. My parents were grumblers and their parents before them were grumblers. Of course they were. They're all in Adam. But now we're in the the new Adam. And we are called to a new way of life. So that the church can be a light in this dark world. Yesterday we were at a baseball game. It's cloudy all day. All of a sudden the light, the sun started shining brightly where we couldn't hardly see. Hot. Stephen looked up at me and said, Dad, why is the sun so bright? I said, the clouds are gone. Paul says, the clouds that are keeping you from being a light is your grumbling. 
and you're disputing. And he's given us the prescription to deal with that. Let's take the prescription. Let's pray. Father of mercy, thank you, Lord, for a difficult text that impacts our, our everyday street-level lives because we all are prone to grumbling, because we're all prone to ingratitude. And Father, we want to be a grateful people. As we sang this morning, may we behold our God. It's in beholding you in the face of your Son that chastens ingratitude, chastens fear and jealousy. It chastens all the heart conditions we read about this morning that eclipse your glory in our lives. Oh God, as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, may we walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, abounding in him with thanksgiving. May the word of life richly indwell us all. As we hold fast to it. And Father, if there's any of you in here who have never experienced the Lord of life. That the word of life centers upon. I pray that you would show them there is a savior. Who's willing to save anyone. Who would trust in his all sufficient work for their salvation. Through his life, his death, his resurrection from the grave. And I pray Lord they would be compelled to come talk to me about what the gospel is and what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have the forgiveness of sins. And we ask these things in the name of our Christ. Amen. As we stand.